Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Anyway, um, we still have plenty of time, I think, so how about we have some questions from the audience, and Gemma, if, if you'd like to join us as well? That would be lovely. So we um, we have a question at the back there. Uh, this is for Lucy. Uh, I know you've briefly spoken about having a, a very sort of symbolic or abstract uh, cover. Um, as much as you can say, how how just curiously, how do you, would you have felt if you had a bit more? Illustrated or sort of graphic one that like shows some of your 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 character in a landscape like sometimes you have traditional you know traditional covers I mean do you have any sort of I just wonder what your thought might be about about that. Um, did you see the original cover of Starborn? Right, Tom. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, so that's the original cover of uh, Starborn. <laughs> He's modelling it <laughs> beautifully. <laughs> um, yeah, like, as in, do you mean like, you know, Peter Newman has those really excellent illustrations of, yeah, see, I would totally be happy with that. It looks really, really cool. Um, I think where I, that may not have served me very well was um, putting a woman on the front with her hair blowing in the wind because it makes it look quite romantic and quite young adult and I think it's possibly didn't really do it did me a bit of a disservice that cover um, it was a bit I love it I think it's very pretty um, but that's possibly alienating a big chunk of my readership who might be you know as I said when you walk into a bookshop you you're bombarded with with covers and you kind of want you don't know what to pick up um, you know and if, if you if you're inclined to make any kind of judgment whatsoever even unconsciously you might see that and go oh, it's not really kind of that's possibly not for me um, which in which cases I think my publisher decided to just ditch the character entirely and just go with the symbol um, which you know I'm, I'm as long as it, it increases my sales then I'm really happy with that because I think the new covers look great um, but yeah it's it I don't hate the old one, and I, I quite liked having a woman on it, but um, yeah, you go where the money goes. <laughs> to be honest, I'm pretty open about covers, really. So um, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of been in a position where I've had two quite different ones uh, to judge, but I feel like uh, I've kind of have to separate myself from my feelings on this, because to be honest, I just really want people to pick my book up and read it. Um, so I'd love to kind of, you know, get to a position where I can be like, this is the cover I really want. Make it happen. Um, and another point on that, I think, is is that the, the character on your your first cover is in a cloak, right? And recently, just about every fantasy novel has had somebody in a cloak on the cover. It's like the entire publishing industry was being sponsored by Scottish Widows Insurance Company. Uh, <laughs> So, it, the fact that it's the same as everybody else, you, you want the cover change to stand out? 
it's really funny you say that because um, they, that's why they did it. They wanted it to be Trudy Canavan-esque because Trudy Canavan has a lot of hooded figures on her covers. So, and because lots of people have said it's very, it reminds them of Trudy Canavan and our styles are quite similar. Um, I, you know, that's fine. It makes perfect, perfect sense. But I, I think maybe the market's moved on a little bit and people's, um, you know, readers' wants and, you know, opinions have, have changed a bit because um, I think that, you know, Trudy, I think Trudy Canavan started publishing almost 20 years ago now. So, you know, I've noticed that the trend for having, you know, people in clothes is still much more prevalent in the US and just having, actually having people um, on covers. Whereas here, everyone goes a bit more kind of down the symbol route. I've just noticed a lot of paperbacks, especially coming out with quite symbolic, abstract covers. Um, you know, and that seems to be the current trend at the moment. 20 years ago, pretty much exactly, because I remember reviewing the initial book in Emerald City, and that, that, was, that was, yeah, that was about 20 years ago. Um, Justin, you had a question. Thank you. Uh, this one's for Gemma. I'm just intrigued about your German story. Um, it made me think of... Um, okay, thank you very much. It made me think of The Book Thief, yes. which I don't know if you know the story, yeah? You've read it? Yeah. Um, and the whole... Uh, Jewish-German thing, mid-war. I don't, I don't know. Was there any? Th let me have a bit of a ramble. You can you can speak after. Um, I, I was intrigued also by the the way you came at the the, the sculpturing and the the fact of being in a guild and uh, having some experience of stonework and the use of German. Um, and I wondered if also whether you'd had uh, or read any other. Uh, kind of classic German literature, you know, like Man and um, uh, some of the other, um, you know, Tin Drum, the, these kind of classics, uh, you know, really where, where your inspiration came from for the novel, uh, the story. Um, not from any of the sources um, you gave, I'm very sad to say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting more into that because obviously I'm going to have to do a little bit more reading if I want to write a novel about it. Um, uh, my um, inspirations came about from two books originally. Uh, one of them was um, Hyperinflation um, in the Wehrmacht era, I think. I'm not quite sure who it's by, but it's basically non-fiction. And um, it talks about the hyperinflation in the early 20s. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, I read that and um, it gave a really interesting insight into the uh, life of the average German civilian after World War One, and particularly with their, the things they had to contend with in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and it also touched a little bit on the, uh, the, the Jewish... Um, uh, you know, the, the feeling that there was this Jewish conspiracy because Jews were considered to have a, a better clothes, better food, access to better services and things. And, and this, obviously, um, uh, the Sturmabteilung kind of played on that and played on people's fears and prejudice that they're having a better time than we are and things. So that definitely played into it when I, when I came to writing the story. Um, it wasn't something that I wanted to touch too much um, because I, it's a sensitive issue and I'm not Jewish myself. Um, and obviously, um, it's not really one of my stories to tell. But um, the uh, name of the main character, Herr Herzl, Herzl is from German word of heart. Um, and 
someone, one of my beta readers, early readers, said, you know, that sounds like kind of a Jewish name. Um, and at that point, I'd really set my heart on it. And um, I thought, well, that's an interesting angle. Yeah. So I thought I'd, I'd look into that. The other novel that I read was The Life of, um, The Luminous Life of Lily Aphrodite. Um, again, I'm really bad. I don't know who wrote it. Um, but it is a fiction, and it basically explores the early career of a fictional um, silent movie star working her way through Berlin um, through the um, First World War and going into the, the 20s period as well. Um, and that gave a really interesting um, insight into the, the life, again, of the average German. Um, because we, we always kind of hear a lot about the World War I and World War II from our perspective. We don't often um, give much thought to the, to the German civilian's perspective. So I found that, that that was something that I wanted to explore. Um, was there anything else that you wanted me to cover? The sculpture. The sculpture. Um, um, Had some training in it? No. <laughs> no, I'm sorry to say. Um, no, that just came about from um, a really old um, snippet of a story that I wrote years and years ago um, of a uh, painter. Um, a young man goes to apprentice to a master painter. Um, and this was, you know, years and years ago, it was a really old little piece. And as I was reading this other material about Germany in the, the 1920s, and um, in my head, it kind of connected with this old piece. And I thought perhaps I could rework that. And um, over time, the, the master painter turned into a piece of art himself. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go with the I mean, the, the art, the painting still exists because um, Amboise, the Steinstoff in, in the story, um, is an artist himself. Um, so he, he paints as well. But, um, yeah, I've lost my thread. <laughs> but I hope that answers your question. <laughs> okay, um, got a question there and Alistair after that. Sorry, can I just sit down for a second? Um, I'm just curious about your, both of your use of um, non-English language, so making up and constructing new words. How do you know when you feel that you've got a word exactly right when you're making up a new word for something? And how do you, if you have to, limit your vocabulary so it doesn't become alienating for a reader, for that kind of new vocabulary? Okay, yeah, so you probably noticed I've got a word in here called, which I took from, you know, the word yarl, which is basically a real word um, for a kind of landowner, um, which I totally nicked from Skyrim, but it, it, <laughs> um, I spell it with an I, though. So, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> but sometimes I pronounce it with a J. It's just, yeah, like that. Um, and ken, but ken is uh, obviously is a word anyway. Um, so those two words aren't like, Particularly, even though I kind of, I've, I've, instead of making them up, I've just reutilized them really for different for a different meaning. Um, I read an essay by um, Tom Pollock about economy in fantasy, um, in which he talked about um, why does everyone use gold, and it, it, is that that's actually quite unusual? You know, wouldn't it be? kind of more interesting if people used a different kind of currency. And then I thought, oh, you know, that, that's a really interesting idea. So maybe, you know, why am I, I've got a whole world at my fingertips here. Why do they have to 
have gold as a currency. It might be interesting if you know people come from a different world, which is what happens, try to spend their gold, and then someone turns around and says, that's youth, that's worthless. We've got tons of it, you know. So let's do something a bit different. Um, so yeah, that the word, and I, so I wanted something really, really, really simple for that. Um, You know, Trudy Canavan does this, where she actually has this, um, oh, like, she has a word for coffee, which is like, it's just exactly like, like, racker or raker or something, but like, some of them, it's really funny, because some authors just change one letter, and it's like, oh, come on, it's still coffee, and other authors are just, they kind of like, shake it up a bit, so it's completely alien, um, but generally, I think the, my rule of thumb is, when doing made-up words, I try and keep it as simple as possible, or some, I try and write a word that's going to fit seamlessly into the English language or that's why it's good to have one that mostly already exists um, yeah otherwise you just end up confusing people um, I'm an advantage there because the language I'm using is a real language sure sure um, I don't know I think um, I think it helps that it's it's a language that's already there, so you can go into Google Translate or you can go into a dictionary and you can look for Stein and you can look for Gershaw and, and it comes up as Stone Creature. And, and, uh, but uh, with your thing about um, making sure that it's not alienating, when I first wrote the um, early drafts of it, there was a lot more German. Um, there was because I was so excited about like oh I'm learning German I'm going to put loads and loads of German in and it's going to be really cool and there was loads of extra words and stuff in there and um, and I was showing it to people and people were like we don't speak German um, half of us can't be bothered to go and look up what these words mean even though typing it in literally the sentence typing it in would bring up the translation a lot of people just they don't want to do that you know they just want to have it you know um, part of the experience of just reading that story so um, I got told to cut quite a bit <laughs> um, but I try to find a um, uh, kind of balance between having enough German in there that it just sort of flavours it a little bit, that you're aware that even though it, it's narrated in English, the narrator is thinking in German, he would be telling the story in German. Um, for the English side of the Schupfer's Guild, it wouldn't be called the Schupfer's Guild. It would be, you know, they wouldn't be called Steinger Schupfer in England or Japan or America. They'd be completely different names. Um, yeah, that's okay. The entire academic track at this year's Worldcon was devoted to the concept of estrangement, uh, and that comes from some of the academic theory around science fiction, where one of the specific differences between science fiction and realistic fiction is this idea that you're, you're being taken out of the real world, so that the skill in writing both science fiction and fantasy is to take the reader out of the real world with these jolts to changes to to reality, which you can do with very easily with language, but not take them so far as, as to lose them entirely. So it, it is very much a skill that science fiction and fantasy writers have to have. Um, if you're ever looking for um, really good words to use, um, like in, in book three, I had to have a, a kind of a bit of another language in there. And I thought, you know, when, like, when you just make up, you put some random letters together and it just looks stupid. You're like, this is awful. So I try to use a language that is a real language. And there's a really good resource on the internet. Um, and it it's, gives you all sorts of kind of like dead languages, stuff that isn't really spoken anymore. Um, so, yeah, there's a really good one that I used, which is mostly kind of an 
ancient Norse um, one where you, 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 this is great kind of dictionary full of words and you can kind of do, I was doing a bit like what you were doing, I was picking and choosing and putting words together and creating new words. So it's, I always wonder if someone reads Firestorm but who you know, also knows ancient Norse, they'll be like, what the fuck are you doing? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. You're just like, you know, but I've noticed when I, when I was done and there's only a few words in there, it, they look a lot more authentic than if I just plucked them out of my head and put words together. <laughs> Alistair. Yes, on the inner coherency of the novel is what you're doing with putting these words in. You have to make it coherent, even though it's not incoherent stuff, but in the world it has to be coherent. But the, the question I was going to say to Lucy is, um, on the cover, if it was a male with the old cover who had written it, would it be reacted differently with the female character on there than... Um, no, no, if there was actually a male... If, if the back book cover had a male author, would it, the people react differently than if it was a female author? Because that, that might change quite differently. So you mean a male author with a female character? Yes. Or, right, okay. But with a man's name on it. Yeah, it might. No, it's a really good point. Um, when I first submitted to um, my agent and then my publisher, I went under L.C. Hounsome. So I did the whole old initials thing, which is what so many female writers have done for ages. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, <laughs> But they, they persuaded me not to. They persuaded me to ditch that and go with my real name. And then began the most bizarre discussion of the fact that they said, oh, well, Lucy is a very girly name, isn't it? And I said, what? <laughs> so hey, comparing it to what? And they went, like, well, what's your second name? I said, my second name's Claire. And they went, oh, well, that's much less girly, isn't it? And I'm like, well, hang on. So we're discussing degrees of femininity in a female name. Like, it's just, just insane. So I said, no, no, I don't want to be Claire Hounsome because that's not actually my, my first name. You're going to have to put Lucy on it if, you know, otherwise do the initials. But just so weird, the fact that they even considered that. So the fact that they did actually, we had that conversation is shows that it does play a part in some people's consciousness. Yeah, you use the initials, Gemma. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hide. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, when I first started, it just it seemed a good idea because I don't know. Gemma doesn't seem like a great name. My middle name is Victoria, but then Victoria Anderson seems a bit highbrow. Um, G.V. Anderson just, it allows me to hide a little bit more. Um, I can write a little bit more without preconceptions, I should say, um, like they would perhaps with a writer called Lucy. <laughs> um, Yes, that's really valuable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it just it just allows me a bit of a wider scope. Um, if I was Victoria Anderson, perhaps um, people would come to my work thinking it's going to be, I don't know, a bit airy-fairy. Um, super literary, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was my reasoning for keeping it a bit neutral. Because <laughs> you could always make up some name like Star Cobon or something like that. <laughs> Um, certain novels, um, as you're talking about, um, such as Bulgariad and um, Judith Gant, actually are found in young adult nowadays. They're not in them. They're not considered necessarily as adult fiction. Oh, we're, we're just in our fantasy. 
Oh, it, yeah, I know, but it, it's it, what I find as a bookshop. Um, I put it in my adult fiction, but I also get a lot of from the publishers' teenage versions of those books, which don't fit in the because it's just got a much more um, young adult cover for them purposely. Yes. Yeah, they do cross sell it, and I, I think um, this is not to say that these books could not be read by adults or young adults. I mean, I think that I, if I put an age on this I'd say 15 and up would be possibly even 14 if, if, you, if you were anything like me who read The Silmarillion at 14 then you'd be able to cope with these easily um, there's there's nothing particularly you know I think there are teenage books which are much more graphic um, for example but um, I think it's one of those really interesting questions because you know what, what really I was saying earlier what makes Grimdark or what makes YA um, and the only thing that I kind of concluded is that YA has quite a sharp focus on relationships and and size yes definitely size is a lot this is these are 130,000 words so they are well over the accepted YA word limit um, you know and uh, and while there's a bit of romance it's not it does not affect the plot um, whereas I noticed that lots of YA the ro not just the romance but the actual relationships between characters inform the plot so there's not so much other real world stuff real world events happening in YA so much as there is in kind of adult fantasy especially epic fantasy because there's all I mean this is a big there's a falling empire in this so there's a lot of stuff that's going on outside of the characters which is why I never classify it as YA because I think if you liked Throne of Glass for example if you approach my books thinking they were going to be like Throne of Glass you'd be quite disappointed because they aren't but they would be a very good um, stepping stone you know I think they would bridge the gap between you know like being YA and being grimdark. So they kind of sit somewhere in the middle, really, but I definitely would never have sold them as YA. Um. Oh, <laughs> So, yeah. There is, of course, a massive argument going on, both in the YA community and the science fiction community at large, as to whether YA is uh, a marketing category based on age or a marketing category based on the genre of the coming-of-age novel. Uh, and uh, that, that's another one that I do not want to get in the middle of. But it, it's obviously one of the questions that informed the discussions over the potential YA award at, at Worldcon, um, so in, in terms of getting a definition of YA. But thankfully, it being a Worldcon award, we can leave that entirely up to the voters and we'll see what they actually manage to vote as being a YA uh, novel come next year. Any other questions? Uh, nope. Looks like we've run out of that in that case. So thank you very much. Another round of applause, please, for Gemma and Lucy. Do we have any announcements? Pete Sutton's not here. <laughs> It's a little bit early for the Festival of Literature anyway. That will doubtless be coming next month. I have some announcements. Uh, first of all, if you hadn't heard, the Worldcon in 2019, that's in two years' time, will be in Dublin. It's only about half an hour's flight away from Bristol Airport. Um, uh, book now, because Worldcon prices only ever go up. They don't go down. Uh, and uh, hotel prices in, in Dublin as well tend to be quite high. So the, the sooner you can get in, the better on that one. Uh, I hope to see an awful lot of you there.
Um, in addition to which, uh, I have collected a few interviews at Worldcon. I've got a radio show on Wednesday, and, and that will include interviews with Stephanie Salter, Karen Lord, Tempest Bradford, and Nalo Hopkinson. So I've got a nice quiet show. I just put on the pre-records and, and watch the cricket or something, except that the, uh, the Western Storm game doesn't start until 2 o'clock. So there we go. Um, was there was there anything else I wanted to say? Oh yes, uh, I was in Forbidden Planet earlier today, just checking whether they had the the new uh, NK Jemison, which they don't, but they do have a fairly massive clearance sale. There are an awful lot of books there that are a pound each or three for two quid, so um, it might be well worth your popping in and taking a look. Anybody got any other announcements? Yes? No? Nobody Nobody sold any books recently? Gareth's had a cover reveal, but we can't show covers, even though we tried desperately hard earlier today. <laughs> yep. Okay, in which case, we're done. Thank you ever so much. And Tom, next um, next event. Yeah. Let's not forget that yeah, we do this monthly, so please come back. Um, yeah, so we've mentioned Anna Smith-Spark. Uh, she'll be headlining next month with uh, Quarter of the Broken Knives. And for those who came or have listened to the open mic that we had in April, uh, we have Chloe Hedden, uh, who was, I think, uh, opened our second half and kind of wowed us of, who are you? Come back on to the show immediately. And so uh, she's very kindly got... Uh, she's unpublished, but she has been working on something something that she'll be presenting to us next month, which will be very exciting. Um, and we will start sort of giving a heads up for uh, Bristol Con Maine, uh, which is the following month, uh, mainly because our next open mic will be the Friday night before it released. So, um, yeah, so we're back here next month on the 18th of September. We're back upstairs. And, um, yes, then it's the uh, 28th of October. So it'll be the 27th on the Friday night in the, uh, well, we'll have one of the rooms in uh, the Hilton Doubletree for our open mic, but anyone who wants to pitch in, we'll have uh, five minutes, uh, usual drill. I would love to see you. Okay, thank you. And I almost forgot that I have a book out, or at least I, there is a book out which I have an essay in. It's called Gender Identity and Sexuality in Current Fantasy and Science Fiction. Uh, it's well worth a read if you're into feminist rants. <laughs> uh, it has me, it, it has uh, Juliet McKenna, um, it has Kim Lakin-Smith uh, and a whole load of other, other people having a, a good uh, academic rant about things. Good. Buy my book. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. The Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Confringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe.